Cultivating Place is proud to receive support from the American Horticultural Society, celebrating 100 years of trusted, high-quality gardening and horticultural information since 1922. Cultivating Place also thanks the California Native Plant Society for their support. California is a biodiversity hotspot on our planet, and the CNPS is working to save the plants that make it so. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Last week, we looked at gardens and history through the lens of a historic garden cemetery. This week, we look at garden history through the interpretive lens of how we preserve, interpret, codify, and share gardens, past and present. We're in conversation with Christopher Woodward, director of the Garden Museum in London. Welcome to the program, Christopher. I am so pleased to be speaking with you. Thank you, Jennifer. I think I first visited the Garden Museum in 1999, which at that time was a very different place, but it still captured this idea of how to preserve garden history to some extent, how to think about it, talk about it, embody it. I would love for you to describe as the leader of the Garden Museum in London right now, um, your personal intention or mission or organizing principle behind your own work with gardens and garden history right now? Not necessarily so much the museum yet, but yours as its leader, Christopher. Okay, yeah, I had a garden when I was a teenager. I think there's an age around 14 or 15 when people begin to make a garden and it's quite a shy and lonely thing. I I went to a school that was all boys and I was certainly the only person in my class or year who made a garden. And I, um, I lived in a village and I would take the bus home from school in the town each day. And I had a job sweeping up in the village store and I was paid exactly one pound and eight pence an hour. (laughs) And uh, I remember this and I would come home very hungry and I spent exactly 55 pence on a packet of quite nice biscuits, really the best biscuits in the store, which um, set me on a path of lifetime poverty, spending too much money on. um, And then I would use the remaining money to go to the garden centre each weekend and buy a plant. And so I had kind of forgotten this. I, in 1999, when you were in Bristol, I was in London, I was a curator at Sir John Soane's Museum, which is kind of the opposite of the Garden Museum in that it was the house of an architect where everything was preserved as on the day that he left it in 1837. The clock ticks in the same place, the armchair is in the same corner, his sketches are in the drawers, and there's very little glimpse of the world beyond. It's very much a kind of mausoleal museum and and very inspiring. I mean, people come from all over the world. It's incredibly beautiful. And then I went to Um, Not far from Bristol, I went to be director of the Hoban Museum, which was the big art museum in Bath. So at that point, I guess I had a very conventional art history background. And I, it's very easy, it's very, there's always three stories for everything, isn't there? I wrote a book about ruins and I found myself looking at the plants which grew on ruins and I kind of 
the book the, 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 the book is really about why we like ruins when ruins are the consequence of fire or destruction or poverty or war why are we drawn to these places when they are bad places in one sense they're the outcome of bad things happening why do we like ruins and i i think i found myself more and more so my eyes wandering to the plants and then um if this is if this is an answer to your question i was i decided to become i got given loads of money to write a book because the book i'd done on ruins did really well and you know you're suddenly a writer which i didn't really enjoy being i never said i was a writer and i did that for like a year and then i thought i want a job and then actually i'd only come to the what was in the museum of garden history which was basically a a church that had been rescued from demolition in the 1970s to see a tomb, uh, which I'm sitting here looking out of the window at the tomb now. It's the tomb of John Tradescu, who died in 1638. He was gardener to King Charles I. He was also a great traveler, a great collector. And carved onto the side of that tomb are, on the side that I'm looking at now, images from his collection, including he had a crocodile, he had rare shells. Uh, people who had, uh, like John Smith, came back from you know, the lover of Pocahontas came back from Virginia, made gifts to him. But on the other side is an image of ruin, which is the first image in British art where the skeleton as a metaphor for decay and resurrection is replaced by ruin as metaphor. So I actually first came to see that tomb, not because of garden history, but to see this tomb with its scenes of ruins, which is um, based upon Dutch paintings of the time where they took up this metaphor. And then, um, yeah, there was kind of, um, the trustees were deciding whether we, whether they left London because it's quite a difficult site. And we had been offered a location in a house in the country. And we thought, let's try to make a garden museum in the center of London. Okay, wait, I'm going to stop you. I want to make sure that listeners are are following in our trajectory here. So, and you just gave me a lot of information, all of which is great. But I, I want to go back to my initial question. What is your personal mission with this work? I think it's at the bottom about the values that we share in gardens. Yes, it's about the plants and the design. But the museum is really about people, as is your great podcast. It's about people and why we're drawn to gardens. We're not about the how to garden. You can learn how to garden in a thousand places. Yeah. Um, it's why we garden. And I like the idea that you make a place which draws together those stories and they can be embodied in objects, but they can also be embodied in paper. We built this archive of garden design uh, we make movies, we do talks, we do exhibitions. And I think at bottom that, you know, gardeners are nicer than other people. <laughs> I like that. Your exact title is, and how long have you been there? I've been here since 2007, which is 14 years, and my exact title is director. You, you started already uh, to describe, you know, your earliest influences that led you to be to, to hold this idea of gardens as really essential relations and being able to share the different ways that people engage in this activity we call gardening or the way different gardens 
quote unquote gardens look, because as you and I know, and as your work demonstrates beautifully, it's, you know, myriad representations. And so you, you have described to us a little bit about your own intrigue and interest in this idea of ruin and what that means and, and what it, what it symbolizes in our world to, in different ways to different people. Um, and, and you talked about your early childhood. Were, were there adults around you or landscapes around you that you think inform who you are as a gardener right now, Christopher? I guess I grew up in, I guess, the equivalent of John Cheever country in Britain. <laughs> I, um, I grew up in a very prosperous environment and, um, and a very, uh, everyone, the future gleamed. It's a county of opportunity. Everyone was going places. And I guess I was drawn to the more disheveled places. Um, we had, uh, my mother, um, my father ran a big company and um, was basically an athlete. That was his great thing in life, but he had the garden and the rose beds. My father did something very odd, I'll tell you. Um, he made a circular garden and he's dead, so I never had a chance to ask him. And so we had a garden. So I looked out from my bedroom onto a circular garden and he made beds around the garden. Now a circular garden is a very difficult shape to mow. And I, I think you must find this. I think for many people, when you ask the question, it's the grandparents' garden that's the garden they remember. And my grandpa had a, a kind of 1930s Percy Cane garden with, with, with more beds and pergolas and things like that. Not, not, not grand, um, mm -hmm. but a serious garden. And he had very spongy grass. I was doing a TV show about swimming. This is because uh, I do lots of swimming. And it was somebody called Hugh Fernley Whittingstall. And we had just done a big swim, four of us. We'd done a six-hour swim in quite bad weather across the stretch of the coastline. It was kind of epic, actually. I'm still astonished we did it. <laughs> big waves. The fishermen weren't going out. Someone got... Yeah. And we were going to be filmed with Hugh Fernley Whittingstall, who's a television presenter on food, the next day. His mum is a friend, actually. She's called Jane Fernley Whittingstall. She's written the best short book about the British Garden. And I arrived at this house to be filmed. And I was late because... I'm always late and I met one of the runners and I could see my, and my other three swimming friends were behind the hedge being interviewed by Hugh. And I, I was late, but I sat down on the grass and it was the same, <laughs> it was in this, the same spongy grass as my grandpa. So I thought, I don't want to be on the TV show. I just want to lie on the grass. <laughs> That's what I did. So I was never on the TV show. But I think the thing about my parents' garden was at some point, my parents must've had an interest in design because they did commission an architect and they did obviously lay out the garden to a designed plan. Mm. And I wish I'd known why my dad, who didn't express interest in this area, did that. I think he may have been inspired by John Brooks, The Room Outside, but that's mm. me as the garden historian, mm. garden historianizing my own parents. Yeah. But it made, it, it made the garden quite conflicting because uh, my father would mow the lawn, and, but he couldn't mow the curved pieces. So he would get out the scythe and there would always be a frog in the long grass. 
and as if it's always the same frog, a leg would always be sliced off and my mother would run out into the garden saying, David, don't side the grass. And then it became a place of conflict with my sister's rabbit. And that actually was a big trauma because I, um, I would spend all this money on plants as described. And I would come home from school and I would go straight into the garden every day and the rabbit would have eaten my plants. Oh. They were cut down and I would be in tears. Um, and my mother didn't want the rabbit cooped up. So the rabbit had to run free. I haven't thought about this stuff for years, Jennifer, yes, this rabbit. <laughs> and, um, and I've never ever felt such misery as when I'd come home and my lobelias yeah. and things oh. had been chopped down. Oh. And actually it was one of the things that you get from, um, Kim Wilkie told me this, who you've interviewed and Sue Stewart-Smith, um, old people like pruning, young people like planting. When you're young, you cannot conceive of the idea. When your father says you must cut the apple tree for the apples to be ripe and fleshy, you must prune it. The child can't, it seems an utter impossibility. The child can't believe that it will grow back. Right. There was a film called The Day of the Jackal, which was about a hired assassin. And there was a boy at school who had a rifle and I paid him 10 pounds to come and shoot my sister's rabbit from my bedroom window, but I couldn't go through with it. He came around with the rifle. <sighs> And we saw this rabbit and I, and I said, I can't, I've never shot anything in my life. I didn't like shooting things, <laughs> I, um, but I've never hated anyone or anything ever since as much as that rabbit. Was there any resolution in which you were able to protect your plants, Christopher? The rabbit ran away. Uh, the rabbit. Not aided by rabbit. you. Okay. No, no, the okay. rabbit just went. It wasn't and an so, assisted yeah. migration. Sorry, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so no, I felt completely impotent. That was the thing. There was nothing I could do. This is uh, such a beautiful stage uh, that you have just set for how our gardens hold all of these tensions of life and death and human drama and what we want and what we actually can control. And that spongy grass of your grandfather's as, you know, them gardens being these vessels for some of our sweetest and some of our most painful memories in life. So the gardens are places of life and death. I mean, mm. and they're places where I think one of the great things about that, there's always been this um, in the art world, there's always been a kind of inferiority complex and in literature with gardens, yes. landscape writing, whether it's uh, Barry Lopez or Robert McFarlane or is epic. Landscape writing is serious. Um, garden writing has always had, there are some exceptions like, well, Garden writing has always had this domesticity and people like Jamaica Kincaid, who you've done, who's, who's amazing, they, they've been able to draw out of this domestic space more epic stories. Yeah. One of the many things about Sue Stewart-Smith's book is that she shows that gardens are effectively this space where we mediate between the inner private world and the public world. Mm. And they are an in-between space. They're a transitional space. They're a space where we make these faltering first conversations but mm. they're not out there and they're not in there they're a space between which gives them this kind of yeah I think that yeah claims their place in our lives and I we do a memoir competition each year and whatever the subject we change the theme each year um I'm always startled by how um how many stories of life and death come out through the garden I mean it's a, half the entries are always about death and but death has resolved through the garden. Yeah. And to go back to the ruin point, 
a new life, which, and what I also like about working in a museum is, is you're kind of bringing people back to life. So today we have, we have a Constance Bright exhibition at present and she was the great florist who died in 1960. Mm -hmm. Not forgotten, but sort of blurred into an image, a kind of a cliche. Yes. And what you do in an exhibition is excavate her and rebuild her in all her facets and colors and aspects. And I, that's what I like about being a curator. It's a kind of exhumation of people from the past. This is Cultivating Place. Christopher Woodward has been the director of the Garden Museum in London since 2007. Celebrating the art, history, and design of gardens, the museum was originally founded in the late 1970s by Rosemary and John Nicholson in order to rescue the abandoned church of St. Mary's at Lambeth. Under Christopher's leadership, the Garden Museum has undergone a modernization and renovation in both space and concept. We'll be right back for more on the importance of conserving, interpreting, and learning from garden history in all of its dynamic ephemerality. Stay with us. Cultivating Place is made possible through proud support from the American Horticultural Society. Soon to turn 100 years old and still growing strong, the American Horticultural Society is committed to integrating science, education, social responsibility, environmental stewardship, community, and the joy that reminds us all of the vibrancy and relevance of gardening in our world. The Society's annual garden auction takes place from October 28th and ends on November 10th, so make sure to check that out soon. Listeners of Cultivating Place receive a $10 discount on annual individual membership to the AHS. For the special Cultivating Place membership rate of just $25 a year, head on over to www.ahsgardening.org forward slash cp. Cultivating Place also receives support from the California Native Plant Society on a mission to save California's native plants and places using both head and heart. The CNPS brings together science, education, conservation, and gardening to power the native plant movement. California is a biodiversity hotspot, and CNPS is working to save and empower the plants and communities that make it so. For more information, go to www.cnps.org. Finally, while the growing season is waning for many of us in the Northern Hemisphere and dormancy is upon us, we all as gardeners know that the soil and the roots and the many beneficial partnerships and microorganisms who run the health of the world are still alive and well. The year-round weekly growing work of cultivating place is also alive and well, and it would not be possible without the support of listeners just like you. Through the support button at the top of every page, at cultivatingplace.com. 
In these last two months of the 2021 calendar year, the front edge of the winter season, I am so deeply appreciative of all of you listening and all of your supporting. If you support Cultivating Place financially, annually or monthly, thank you. I could not curate and produce these conversations that grow us all without your help. If you've been thinking of becoming a monthly sustaining donor, now is exactly the time to invest in these valuable, civil, and growing conversations. All support matters. Please, click the support button at the top of any page at cultivatingplace.com right now and join us. Money is like manure. Spread it around and it helps all the little live things grow. From the roots, to the shoots, to the conversations, and all of the people in these conversations. Thank you, and keep growing. As we come back, Christopher Woodward, director of the Garden Museum in London, dives more deeply into the work, conceptual and tangible, of the Garden Museum. The museum's history goes back in many ways to the history of its medieval site and building. And done well and with consideration, its reach could outlast that same amount of time into the future of gardens and gardeners. One of the other things that is of note in the Garden Museum is that to sort of refer back to your reference to this inferiority complex. I think in the arts, gardening and gardens ha- have, have struggled to find their place of, of rightful um, importance. And yeah. that, that we as gardeners, I think, are sometimes the ones at fault for diminishing or dismissing just how powerful they are, both as design and as narrative and as uh, very high art uh, in their own right. And that is one of the great joys of the Garden Museum in its former, slightly less um, conscious, self-conscious, um, conscientious form when I first yeah. knew it, and in its very, very considered curated form right now, is that we... Uh, you put it in its rightful place to be considered on all of these levels. And so now I'm going to, I'm going to sort of pull us back one more time. Um, And you, you gave us your pathway to the garden museum uh, from your, your experience writing about ruins and then realizing you didn't really want to be a writer, uh, but you did want to be somebody who was helping to flesh out these bigger concepts as held in these very uh, physical, everyday, beloved engagements known as gardens and gardening. Tell us about when you first came to the Garden Museum and um, maybe lead us along to where the, the group decides to 
make this major overhaul because, um, as you mentioned before we got started in our conversation, it was a it was a very big commitment financially and time wise uh, to take this leap. And um, by by all accounts, it has been a tremendous success. Uh, take us on this path, like. Who decided this? And 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 make sure, if you can, to to give us what the mission statement of the 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 board of directors and the museum is at this point, Christopher. Well, the question I was asked at the interview was, "What is a garden museum for?" And um, and because effectively, if you like art, you go to galleries. If you like archaeology, you go to castles. If you like gardens, you go to gardens. Why would you go to a building in the centre of London? And the translation between the popularity of an activity, uh, the fact that an activity is popular does not translate into this thing we call a museum. There's no museum in Britain of food, of swimming, of fishing. None of these museums exist, even though they're highly popular activities. So that was our, our question. And in practical terms, we began really with doing events and exhibitions. And uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm glad to talk about this with you, Jennifer, because we had in, uh, now that the museum's working and is busy, um, people have been in touch from Italy and Austria and Germany about the idea of a garden museum as the cult, you know, and um, we, you know, we, we've we've built it and we can show how it how it works. But I, um, the when you a museum is the antithesis of a garden uh, in that if you take your manual of museum design, it is a seasonal. Curators don't like. We don't like humidity. We don't like changes. We don't. We want the. We want the weather to be the same every day of the year. We don't really like daylight because that damages the pictures. We like security, so we don't like windows because burglars come through windows. So, a museum kind of wants to be a box, without weather. And so, how <laughs> do you? Whereas the garden is the opposite. So, how do you put those two together? Physically, so here I love it actually that sometimes leaves blow into the galleries. I really like that. Um, uh, sometimes there's a bird that flies into the galleries. It's kind of <laughs> not so much fun when you want to go home because it's, it messes up the alarms. You have to get rid of the bird, but to go home. But it's still whether to, then we we I was very influenced by somebody called Tim Richardson, who you should get Jennifer. He is very, he's a design critic, uh, and he put on a program of talks which were biographical. Uh, we, there was a very kind of politeness. So the first garden designer I knew was called Penelope Hophouse. Right. Through her son. And she would give these lectures. They're amazing, like 200 slides, boom, boom, boom. She and Frank Cabot would do this double act, boom, boom, boom. <laughs> but there was, no, there was nothing of the self at all. And people loved it. And everyone would say, oh, what about box blight? What about mulching? And she would answer. And I just thought this person is actually really interesting because I know her. Right. And um, there was also, we have her archive here. We built this archive of garden design. Mm. And actually, one of my favorite things is a letter she wrote to Steve Jobs, your kind of neighbor. And um, she did his garden. And he obviously clicked with her in some way. And she writes this three-page letter to Steve Jobs, which I've got somewhere, well, is here, which actually tells her much more about her work than her books do. It's, uh, it says what she likes and what she thinks he will like. And um, so, so, I, so Tim Richardson came along. He interviewed people like Dan Pearson, like Christopher Bradley Hole, and it was really electric because 
it wasn't just show us your gardens, it was tell us about you. Mm. I mean, you do this, so you know this, but it hadn't been done before in gardens. So that was one thing, the biographical approach. The other thing was how do you build, do exhibitions about gardens? And right. we built, we spent the money we had on, on building an exhibition gallery and the gallery had to meet. So we built it as a kind of box inside this church because when I started, there was no heating, there wasn't like a burglar alarm. It was kind of a derelict building, pretty much. There was no floor. There were just wooden boards laid on bones, basically. And um, so we built this kind of pod inside the museum, which would meet the requirements to borrow from galleries such as the Tate in terms of security, environmental controls. Mm -hmm. And the first exhibition we did was of Beth Chateau. And it was kind of strange because gardeners were so modest that we had to persuade her to do that. And I was used to artists who, um, <laughs> he wanted, you know, and architects who have no issues about being in the spotlight. Right. And you know, I was kind of trying to coax these people into the spotlight. And so, and I wrote this piece for the garden magazine. I, I remember it because I was nervous and I was on a beach called um, Paxos. It's a beautiful island in the Mediterranean. And I was writing this piece for the garden magazine um, about hopes and fears for the exhibition. And I was thinking, is anyone going to come to an exhibition about a garden designer? Or Beth would not call herself a designer, but a garden maker. Mm -hmm. Because what's in the show? There's some letters, there's some photographs, um, there's some paintings that she has by Cedric Morris, who is her great hero. Um, but I was used to this, I was used to doing like shows with Gainsborough. I did a lot of Gainsborough exhibitions where there are oh. 12 key portraits, yeah? And, and it's all about the painting, getting the painting. We're doing Lucian Freud's plant paintings next autumn, and it's a bit like that. You have a list of 40 paintings you really, really want. But this was different. This was like, we have a space and we're filling it with stuff from someone's life. And I was, I was, you know, I was thinking, who will come and look at one of Beth Chatter's letters? But it was great. It was really popular. People loved it, so it worked. But I say that because I was genuinely thinking, is this going to work? Right. And this gets to this next question, and that is the importance of the afterlives of gardens. It wasn't really a question so much as a, as a kind of a thought from a phrase that you offered out to me. And I'm thinking about this, you know, this exhibit about Beth Chatto yeah. and her own psychology and her own history and her own thinking that offers us as as someone enjoying that exhibit, um, it, it offers us a different way to see gardens or hold gardens or value gardens. And I think that is tapping into the importance of preserving this afterlife of gardens, maybe. Exactly. No, yeah. And, and my what I was thinking is, and I think the, the afterlife thing is very challenging, Jennifer, because some people, um, I think that some people in their afterlife or in how they're commemorated some people want to be a stone and some people want to be a seed mm. and the stones are kind of easy because you have a monument and an epitaph and their achievements are chiseled into marble and the um seeds are harder because they want their afterlife to be soil growth they want their afterlife to be through many different channels through through roots if you like and gardeners obviously fall into that second category it's set out very much by Humphrey Repton who died 200 years ago the great landscape designer who we did a show about a big exhibition 
he actually did commemorate his works in paintings, so lent himself to an exhibition. Mm. But when he chose to be buried, which was in a churchyard in Norfolk, he wrote a poem about how he didn't want to be commemorated by a pyramid or an obelisk, but by the flowers that grew on his grave. It's something that Shelley picks up on Rome in a very beautiful, uh, he applies the same idea to one of his children who died in Rome, but also to his friend Keats. He, he talks about into this, into this earth I pass abortion. It's an idea that we, um, our afterlives are in the earth. So, but what is challenging about this is some people, some people, I'm, I'm looking at a book um, we did about Russell Page who died in 1982, mm. who's a great hero of us. We, we, yeah. we built the archive around his work. He comes back to life like a, like a powdered drink. Add water and he's alive, yeah? And he comes to life. He, other, other people, they're really, we, we lose them. I don't know what it is. They, I won't say who they are because lots of people listening, but there are some designers who, who just vanish. <laughs> and you can't bring back to life. Yeah. And I don't know why that is. Because people aren't in, basically people, everything we do, we have to sell tickets for. And not right. tens of thousands of tickets, but there needs to be an audience. And everything we do with Russell Page has an audience, even though he, he hasn't, he published one book in 1962, The Education of a Gardener. He, right. very little of his work is, vis is visitable, certainly in Britain, there's a lot more in the States, the Frick, PepsiCo. Um, but he, he comes back to life, but others of his contemporaries, um, they kind of vanish, and I, 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 I think about that a lot. This is Cultivating Place. Christopher Woodward has been the director of the Garden Museum in London since 2007. Celebrating the art, history, and design of gardens, the Garden Museum was originally founded in the late 1970s by Rosemary and John Nicholson. Under Christopher's leadership, the Garden Museum has undergone a transformational rejuvenation in both space and concept. We'll be right back for more. Stay with us. Thinking out loud this week, I am really struck by this idea of gardens as important spaces and places of conflict and tension. Tension and conflict of the life and death sort on an every season, if not every day way. We talk about and seek for a lot of beauty and solace and refuge, joy and fruition in our gardens and garden spaces. But especially now at this time of year, autumn in the Northern Hemisphere, the reality of aging, disease, attack, disfigurement, isolation, and the finality, or not, of death are daily realities. It's really hard to take sometimes. And yet, and yet, yep, here come the sunshine and platitudes. But platitudes with so much truth. Our gardens are the perfect classmates, the perfect tough lovers, gurus, and comforters on these exact matters of tension and conflict, aren't they? I am far from the first or the last to be both irritated, super irritated, 
and thankful for this lifelong masterclass in what it is to really engage in life from this hardest and kindest of teachers, our gardens. They invite us to this most important of existential question and answer sessions. Keep gardening in heart and mind, body and soul. In a time of year where we often are looking back, reviewing and assessing the past, the past season, or maybe even our past life, this week on Cultivating Place, we're in conversation about garden history and hindsight with Christopher Woodward, director of the Garden Museum in London. As we come back, Christopher explores some of the many ways the Garden Museum is meeting the garden future with Lessons and lenses from the garden past all around us. My brain is toying with this um, this beautiful articulation you just made about how some of us want to be a stone and some of us want to be a seed. and But we're living in a world where we as a culture, and I think it's just convenience or habit or ease, we want to make everybody into stones because that's easier to pin down. And yet... We want the seeds. We need the seeds. And yet they're, they're, they're more squidgy. They're harder to pin down. And this is what you are trying and succeeding to do with, you know, I, I can think of, and, and I haven't been to any of them in person, Christopher, because I live here and I haven't gotten over there since the renovation. But I'm just thinking of your work with Derek Jarman. I'm thinking of this uh, Constance Spry exhibit. I'm thinking of the one you did on uh, flowers and color uh, last yep. year. And the way you are able to, um, you know, rehydrate these processes and these people and these places through these kind of cues um, of both three-dimensional and two-dimensional um, embodiments. And, and it's just, it gets, it gets almost to a like existential question to our culture, right? Like, who do you want to be? Do you want to be a stone or do you want to be a seed? And how do we make sure to cultivate and... Uh, yeah, I, I think that there's something that perhaps we'll come back to later, which is how we deal with this in sitters, because we are involved in quite a few contests within London where you do feel that what you might call soft voices, soft skills are in battle with harder voices mm. um, of money, architecture, a different pace. I think with people, it's, um, yeah, I mean, Derek, it, it's, it's, I think gardens have a, their own time zone. Um, when we're in a garden, past, present, and future come together in a way that they don't in many other spaces. I, um, Derek Jarman, who we, we just won something called Exhibition of the Year for a show we did, which was oh, a, real, a, a real adventure because we, we did it during a moment in lockdown where it was extreme, where our prime minister was in the hospital, which is 500 metres away because we're so close to the parliament, 
um, if I was talking to you now, there would be there would have been four or five sirens already, as as ambulances rushed people to hospital, and we we basically built a kind of as as many of your listeners will know, he he made this garden by the sea in the shingle at Dungeness, which is the strange landscape of fishermen's huts behind a, power, a nuclear power station, and we did a show about his garden, and we worked with a theatre designer, which was quite a challenge because uh. he said, "I want the lighting to be this," and I and I want stones from the beach so we had to kind of get stones legally so we you walked into the exhibition across a um a beach which was something i would never have uh, <laughs> attempted and um and it was very moving people were into, and 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 um i i have a um and i and i think that gardens have that ability to sort of collapse time i um mm. i have a big thing about virginia wolf um who i'm always I had to give a talk about um, Virginia Woolf at a college in Oxford. And I, someone, they were doing a big conference and they said, do you anyone who can give a talk on Virginia Woolf and gardens? And I didn't. Then I thought, well, I can. And uh, by the time I got there, I was in a state of complete terror. (laughs) Uh, Because they had all the Woolf scholars. I called it Woolf Hall, this college. And... um, and I thought I haven't even got to the end of Mrs. Dalloway. And, um, but I knew there was something special in her writing on gardens, which I tried to articulate. But to prepare for this talk, I, I went to her garden at Rodmel, which is near Charleston in Sussex. And, mm. I, um, and like when you go to a garden in a book, it never looks the same. You always have this moment of despondency thinking, that's not what she wrote about. That tree is not what I thought it was, you know. And, you have a moment where you think that it's it's the same at a writer's house. You think it's not what I imagined. And because right. um, her garden was kind of, it was Leonard's garden. It was kind of conventional 1930s garden. It had all the right flowers. It had a bit of sculpture, but it was a kind of conventional garden of its time. And then Jennifer, she wrote a, in the months before her death, she wrote this autobiographical fragment called A Sketch of the Past, which is mm-hmm. the best autobiography ever. It's the kind of thing they should have on they should have Virginia Woolf reading her autobiography on Now Voyager going out into space because it's a wonderful, whether you like the novels or not, it's a wonderful reflection on, on your own past. Yeah. And she writes it in the garden at Rodmel and she says, why is it that I can see Percy the gardener gardening outside the window of my writing hut? And why is it that I feel closer to the garden in St. Ives, the town in Cornwall where they went on holidays when they were kids 70 years ago, 60 years ago, than I do to... Percy gardening or the maid beating a mat out of the window. Why is my mind there? And I was thinking about this visiting Rodmel and um, I heard a voice from a window, which is her bedroom. And it was a lady saying, oh, Virginia would do this. Virginia would do that. And I thought, oh, that's docent syndrome. She thinks that, you know, where docents kind of take on the Mm -hmm. imagined past. And then I went into the room and this old lady was sitting there and she was saying yes. And she would do this and she would do that. And I thought that all rings very true. And she said, oh, my father, Percy. And I said, are you the daughter of Percy the gardener? And she said, that's right. I'm, and, I, and I said, so you knew Virginia Woolf? And she said, that's right. And I, I was like, um, this kind of destroyed me. because uh, and, and, and so gardens have this thing where, where decades can snap like a twig. Yeah. yeah. So in trying to encompass both their immediacy 
and their ability to transcend time and scale because we go from the human scale to the incredibly like divine existential existential scale pretty quickly in a garden uh, if we allow that to happen or we or we pay attention to it happening. Can you perhaps describe for visitors uh, exhibits in which you maybe have failed at capturing this as opposed to exhibits that you have felt really pleased with how they capture this as a way to illustrate what you as the curator and the museum as a whole is is grappling with growing every day yeah that's a very good question i think with some exhibits you the voice a living voice can be too strong yeah and it's very hard to uh, yeah, I, I, yeah, a living, a living voice can give just one dimension. Right. It can be very beautiful, very stylish, but perhaps doesn't give you the textures of the life that, um, that are what you remember from other exhibits. So, with Constance Bribe there's a lot of images of her garden and words on them, which people have sort of scribbled down in their notebooks because they're very beautiful. I think with, um, with um, we've, we've probably been too, it's a very hard, I, I, we're kind of small. So you, you always worry about toppling into chumminess I guess um, mm. and I'm always terrified of being a snob or being I find it hard to explain that because um, we do lots of stuff in we do a literary festival and um, it moves from garden to garden each year so we just came back from that this weekend and it was at a great um, a beautiful 15th century house called Helmingham Hall which is like something from a book of hours. It's a, a castellated house in a moat with formal gardens, but not big formal gardens. And people who come to the festival, because it always sells out straight away, get it. But I had some younger speakers and I, who, we had three people in their twenties talking about gardening in lockdown. and. I think we were very welcoming and I wanted them to realize actually just because it's a castle doesn't mean that we're, that you can't, we don't talk about allotments because actually we talk about allotments the whole time. Um, so I worry about the room I'm sitting in. We, we had 70 schools in the year before the pandemic to do basically plant biology. So I kind of know all that stuff, but I, I, I always worry about being, perceived as too, um, too, um, it's not about knowledge, it's about too refined, too, 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 um, yeah, that's what I think about a lot, Jennifer, is do, do people sort of get us when they come in? Do they get what, what we're trying to do? We have, we like humor, we like fleshiness, so we have tools beside designs, and I hope that people get that, as you can tell from my, stammering um it's something that 
we 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 think about uh, a lot. Well, and it's I think a fair and important fear to hold because gardening and uh, that whole sphere has for far too long been too snobby and too erudite and too exclusive uh, it, it, to its own impoverishment, I would say. And yeah. um, so I think this is a really valuable fear for anybody working in the way we think about gardening to hold very close close to their heart uh, as they as they move forward in what they're doing and how they're doing it and why they're doing it. Um, the scope of the Garden Museum, as you said, is is far beyond the, the building walls. You have uh, the literary festival, you have uh, the, you know, lectures each year, you have, uh, I think, contests uh, that you mentioned as well. Are there any other facets of the programming that you would like to share with listeners that they should keep an eye out for? And, and, and how much of this is accessible online for those of us who don't live in London and can't get to every exhibit? Yeah, no. And, and a big, um, the, the, we, I, I'm a very, um, we, we had a big sort of shift in terms of going online because of, you know, what pandemic and stuff. And I, we are making more and more movies. That's something I really enjoy. And I, we're making probably four or five. They're very short films. I mean, we made films about figures such as, well, Penelope Hoppers, Beth Chateau. We did Andrew Lawson, the photographer. And these are portraits we film. And I'm very proud of those because there is no film, for example, of Gertrude Jekyll. And what would one give to have... 20, 30 seconds of seeing her in the garden in those boots, it would be worth a dozen books. And so I wanted to make these films kind of for the afterlife, exactly, um, where we capture contemporary designers talking about their lives. And so we've done six or seven of those. I always want to make more. They Obviously, there's a degree of cost. Um, we just did one. The last one we did was about some gardens in southeast London. There's a place called... Catford, which is not it's not in a city, it's not suburb, it's somewhere between the two, but it's not it's not prestigious. And after the Second World War, they built about four hundred what we call prefabs, which are these kind of ready-made bungalows that came as a kit. And for many people who had been bombed out of their homes, it was their first chance to live in a bright modern house with a garden. And the council, which has been, um, there are both points of view. They're now, they were, they were built to last for 10 years. They're now 70 years old. So they're being flattened. So we made a film about six of the gardens. And I'm really proud of that little film. It's on our website at the moment. And a presenter called Matthew Wilson, whose uncle happened to live there. And I kind of, I went around with my baby who's 10 months old and just knocked on doors and said can we film your garden (laughs) and I'm and that's a sweet little film where people just talk about the birds and the trees and the plants because they're about to vanish and so I'd like to do yeah I'd like to do more films the next one we're making is about um someone called Sybil Kreutzberg who is one of Vita Sackville West's gardeners she had Mm. two yeah. And she is 96 and we're going uh, to film her 
Oh, good job. Returning to Sissinghurst. Yeah, yeah, I haven't done it yet. So my, I'm scribbling with my pen. Do it. I think I have um, seeds of their white poppy, Sybil and... Oh, uh, um, did you? Yeah, yeah. yeah well, I, I, I always used to get them mudded up, but it's, it's Sybil. And um, she is... Uh, she's kind of got email. And um, she's living in a retirement home in the Cotswolds. And oh, that's so great. She said during, yeah, during lockdown, she made a garden, she said, but the gardener, the contractor for the retirement home, ignored all her comments. Oh. <laughs> yeah, and, 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 and exactly the, you know, I'd like to do more of what you do, which is capturing people's personalities. As we um, come to a close, is there anything you would like to add about the incredible importance of something like and the exact Garden Museum and its role in this world of elevating and interpreting this intermediate and mediating thing that we know as the garden? Yeah, I, I, I mean, we are, you know, we are a small place. We have no endowment. We have no public funding. We we just keep ourselves busy and I I feel I you know I spend 93% of my time thinking about having the money to pay for projects. I think it's just very precious. The thing I was working on this morning is about Caribbean horticultural heritage in South London. We asked 10 people who were of what we call the Windrush generation who came here in the 1950s from what had been colonies in the Caribbean to share the stories of their gardens and that I find that very moving I find it really moving actually as they talk yeah. about the heartbreak and the challenge of remembering gardens far away mm. so I I kind of I kind of just think there should be you know there are many ways of building a garden museum this is just the one we've done and I kind of would like people to think that hey you can do your own uh, it's I think I do like our relationship with the city because I think that it's very easy for a garden to be too much in escape, but actually it should be somewhere as it was for Derek Jarman, where you recuperate to go back into the world gardens. And, and there's a lovely line from an architect in the 19th century who said that, um, so we built our museum not to be, we haven't built a wall around it. We've built it to face the city. Yeah. And there was an architect in the 19th century who said that, uh, He's called Ashby. He said, um, Charles Ashby, he said, the world is a difficult place. All of us need a balcony to go out onto sometimes. <laughs> Thank you very much for being a guest on the program today. It's been a great pleasure uh, to speak with you and an honor to share forward the work of the Garden Museum, Christopher. Thank you, Jennifer, and thank you for the great, the great programs that you do. Christopher Woodward has been the director of the Garden Museum in London since 2007. Celebrating the art, history, and design of gardens, the museum was originally founded in the late 1970s by Rosemary and John Nicholson in order to rescue the beautiful but abandoned Church of St. Mary's at Lambeth. Under Christopher's leadership, the Garden Museum underwent a modernization and renovation in both space and concept from 2015 to 2017. Today, more than ever, the hindsight and foresight 
that gardens and gardeners the world over offer to us is perhaps more rich and valuable humus with which to grow from than it has ever been. Happy November. Join us again next week when we delve into this ongoing season of harvest and seed in our own gardens, as well as in the garden of a planet all around us, in conversation with Heather McCargo, founder and seed program manager of the Wild Seed Project in Maine. Listen in next week. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio. Cultivating Place is made possible by listeners just like you through the support button at cultivatingplace.com. We are also made possible by partner support from the American Horticultural Society and the California Native Plant Society. To read more and see many images from this week's conversation with Christopher Woodward about the Garden Museum's innovative and inspiring exhibit and garden spaces, make sure to check out this week's episode show notes under the podcast tab at cultivatingplace.com. The Cultivating Place team includes producer and engineer Matt Fiddler and producer and development director Sarah Bohannon. We're based on the traditional and present homelands of the Machupta Indian tribe of the Chico Rancheria. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, Enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.